and uh, all that was involved in that. And you think of the sacrifice that uh, went into that. Um, it reminds me of our missionaries. You know, we have missionaries in different parts of the world. And one of the, um, one of the times that's the toughest is like this time of year when uh, our missionaries miss their families, right? They're serving overseas. And I think it was a couple of years ago we had a group of missionaries and uh, we got together in the library and we just talked about what are your concerns. And every one of them said, uh, my parents are getting older and my parents need me and my parents want me and we're torn between what we sense is the call of God on our life to serve where we're serving and the call of God on our life to come and serve our elderly parents and what a struggle that is. And so um, there's a brand new uh, prayer letter on the missions bulletin board on the way down to the gathering hall and I'd encourage you, you know, one of the great gifts you could do for our missionaries is to pray for them. And they submit prayer requests on a regular basis and uh, the most current list is in a um, little holder alongside the bulletin board. If you would take one of those and pray for our missionaries this Christmas, that'd be a wonderful gift to them. And so I just encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, This morning, I would suggest to you that um, of all the biblical characters associated with the story of Christmas, that the wise men are perhaps the most mysterious and uh, maybe the most misunderstood. Uh, Who are they? You know, where do they come from? How many of them really were there? And what are they? And what do they believe? And, and what's their background? And why are they there? And how did they know when to come? And, and so on and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> I think most of our ideas about the wise men come from tradition and from speculation uh, rather than from the Bible and from history. Um, you know, we sing that song sometimes at Christmas time We Three Kings of Orient are, right? And uh, really, um, it's very doubtful that they were three kings. The magi, or the wise men, were advisors to kings. They weren't kings. And uh, they had a role uh, to the king, but they weren't kings. And, and we don't know if there were just three of them. Uh, I think it comes from the idea that they brought three gifts, which we are told in the scriptures. But uh, how many of them, we don't really know. And uh, they were kind of the higher echelon of society. And so probably when they traveled, they had uh, maybe even a small army with them. And so when they showed up in Jerusalem, you know, everybody knew something was up and something was going on. And, and, and uh, I think there are a number of traditions that might not be true that I'd like to kind of challenge today a little bit. And uh, I'd like to kind of keep asking the same question. What happened to the wise men on their way to Christmas? Who are they? Where they come from? I know it says they came from the east what we have, um, you know, the east is east of Israel, but, you know, it just keeps going east, right? You can just, whereabouts are they from? And so what we have is in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's uh, uh, the only writer who mentions the uh, wise men. And by the way, the word magi, it just means wise men in Greek. So magi, wise men, same thing. And uh, here's what we read, the first couple of verses of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. How did they know to ask for the one who's called the king of the Jews? Uh, there's a lot of um, mystery surrounding the wise men. How did they know to follow a star? What's their religious background? Well, there's an ancient historian, a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, 
uh, who wrote that the Magi were basically a tribe, a priestly tribe, kind of like the Levites were to Israel, of the Medes. You've heard of the Medes and the Persians. It was an empire uh, way back before Christ, you know, uh, the Medes and the Persians. And um, in the book of Esther, their uh, territory, the Medes and the Persians ruled over a territory that was massive. We read in the first verse of Esther, chapter 1, in the days of Asher Harris, the king, Asher Harris, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, 127 different provinces, the, the Medes and the Persians. And uh, down in the 13th verse of the first chapter of Esther, we kind of get a sense of the role of the wise men or the magi uh, back in this day. Um, Verse 13 says, the king said to the wise men or the magi, you know, who knew the times, uh, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, uh, the men next to him, and then there's seven men that are named, seven princes of Persia and Media, uh, uh, who, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So the wise men, or the magi, were a group of very smart people, uh, trained in, as lawyers and, and uh, kind of um, uh, philosophers, if you will, scholars of the day, uh, that kings would surround them. They were kind of like the advisory board. I, I think of Donald Trump filling out his, quote, cabinet. You know, and they, This kind of the early cabinet, the magi, the wise men, uh, who would help the king to rule over his kingdom. And uh, one of the things uh, we read, um, this was also uh, during the time of Daniel, um, and you might remember that um, uh, Babylon took over Israel, remember, in 586 B.C., about 600 years before Christmas happened. Um, Nebuchadnezzar came in, the Babylonians came, and they captured the Israelites, and they took them back to Babylon. And one of the people that they captured was a young man named Daniel. And uh, we uh, have his writings here in the Old Testament. And uh, we read that in Daniel, um, you know what? Uh, The laws of the Medes and the Persians were the rule of the day. They were the standard. Like when the Medes and the Persians issued an edict or a decree, Like, you couldn't change it, and that's the way it was. And so in Daniel chapter 6 and uh, in verse 8, for example, um, we read about this. That uh, um, Let me see. O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked, right? Uh, Verse 12, uh, sort of the same thing. Uh, Then they came near and they said uh, before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man within 30 days except to you, um, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked, and so on. And so you see that, you know, during Daniel's time there in Babylon, that was uh, the rule of the land, the laws of the Medes and the Persians kind of Uh, ruled things in Babylon. And so the Magi were this group of priests or uh, a group of advisors that surrounded the king. And um, in Babylon, where the Israelites were held captive, Daniel uh, was chosen, if you remember, to be one of the king's choice people, one of the king's choice men. And the king was going to have a special training program, and Daniel was only supposed to eat, and Daniel and his three friends only supposed to eat certain things and all of that. And I don't know how much you remember the story, but it is said of Daniel here in chapter 1 and verse 20. Um, Here's what happened uh, as Daniel was there and got to know the king. 
uh, every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of his magi, uh, he found Daniel and his friends ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And so think about that. Uh, Daniel rose right to the top. Uh, He was superior to all of the other magi, this uh, group of people. In Daniel chapter 2, in verse 27 and 28, uh, Daniel answers the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer uh, could possibly show the king the mystery uh, that the king has asked. But there is a God. Nobody can do what you're asking, king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries who exposes what's behind the scenes, who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And then Daniel reveals uh, the dream uh, to the king. In chapter uh, 5 and uh, verse uh, 11, again, uh, you see how Daniel just kind of rose to the top and became uh, very influential among the magi. Uh, Verse 11, um, They reported to the king, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Uh, This is uh, after Nebuchadnezzar when his son took over. And uh, this is somebody telling that king, you know, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers because of the excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems that were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he'll show you the interpretation. So... Here comes this group of Israelites, right, into Babylon. Babylon's already got this cadre of uh, uh, magi or wise men surrounding the king. And Daniel and his friends sort of become like competitor magi. And uh, the king is beginning to recognize that they're superior uh, to all of his magi. And um, you notice that uh, these magi were magicians. They were astrologers. They were trying to figure out reality in some way apart from God. And so they did magic. They, you know, uh, consulted the stars. We still have astrology charts, right, that people consult to make decisions and, and figure out and want to know, you know, what stars they're born under and, and things like that. And that's how these people went about giving their advice. They were enchanters. They were uh, said to be soothsayers. Um, a soothsayer was somebody who predicted the future. They just made predictions about uh, the future. And uh, they were basically occult practices, And um, this idea of magic or the occult was still around, you know, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. You might remember there's a couple of, quote, magicians that uh, the gospel comes up against and challenges um, in Acts chapter 8 and uh, verse um, 9. There was a man named Simeon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And uh, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God, you know, and uh, that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simeon himself, the magician, believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles uh, performed, he was amazed." 
So here's uh, one of these people, you know, a magician who is converted. And then a little bit later in Acts chapter 13, there's uh, another one, and Paul comes up against him. And this gives you a sense of the pagan magicians and, and kind of the reaction to them. And, and chapter 13 in verse 6, when they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, um, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And um, skip down to verse 8. Um, Saul, uh, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this guy, and he said, You son of the devil. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You see, the occult and magic and consulting stars and everything was all in place of consulting the God who created us. And uh, getting our advice and getting our understanding about life and, and so forth from, from God. And still today, I think we have this problem with us. So the Magi who showed up in Bethlehem to meet Jesus were wise men, non-Jewish equivalents to our scholars, our lawyers, our philosophers, our professors, our doctors. Uh, they were your go-to people when you had a problem. Uh, they were um, uh, kind of the cabinet of uh, influential people, but you'll notice that they did what they did by sorcery and by the occult and by astrology and witchcraft and and whatever. Uh, We actually, the word magistrate actually comes from the Greek word magi. The magistration or the government uh, around the king uh, actually comes from that word. And so uh, these wise men are said to come from the east and probably from Babylon. And I'll show you why in a minute. But um, When you think about Israel on the map, and you realize that just a little bit north and to the east is Syria, and that's where all the fighting has been going on lately, and then to the east of that is Iraq, and then to the east of that is Iran, and that's where Babylon was. And so scholars estimate that uh, for the wise men to come from Babylon and go to Jerusalem and back again is about 1,500 miles, okay? And, uh, you know, I know we picture them being on camels, and uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but uh, probably uh, they rode something and uh, uh, maybe Arabian horses or whatever, but it's estimated that it would take probably three months to make that trip. And so these wise men, uh, if they came from Babylon, spent three months to go and to meet Jesus. Um, in January, you'll hear a little bit about um, Epiphany, and Epiphany is um, a celebration in January Uh, that's usually celebrated by the Eastern Orthodox Church that celebrates uh, the coming of the wise men to Bethlehem, the first Gentiles who come and meet Jesus, and uh, the first Gentiles who are converted uh, upon uh, meeting Jesus, the first revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles, Epiphany. And so Daniel came to be the chief advisor, okay? He became the leading magi to King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, this mention of magi in Daniel in Babylon is our best clue as to who these people really were and where they really came from. And um, when you think about this, um, Daniel and his friends, again, became the rivals to the uh, Babylonians who were there. And if you remember the story, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, Daniel got on the good side of Nebuchadnezzar right away uh, because uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he forgot it. He couldn't remember what his dream was. Has this ever happened to you? You ever have a dream and it's really dramatic and you get up in the morning and you're trying to remember it. Your wife says, you know, gee, you were moving around a lot last night. What, what was your dream? 
and you can't remember it, right? And so that's what happened to the king. He had some really significant dream, but he couldn't remember it. And um, so, um, you know, he goes to all of his um, uh, magi, his wise men, and uh, here's what he says in Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is really troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, long live the king, tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation, right? The king said, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, "Uh, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn from limb to limb and your houses will be laid in ruins. The guy really wants to know the dream, and he can't remember it, right? And he's going to rip these guys apart, and he's going to kill them, right? And then he says, you know, if you do show me the dream, uh, I'll reward you, and, and so on. Uh, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, and they said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician, magi, or enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and nobody can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Surprise. Surprise. That's what they thought, you see. And so, um, verse 12, because of this, the king was so angry and furious that he commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. Let's just get rid of the whole bunch. Right? Just... Guy has a temper. Remind you of anybody? Eh? Because of this, the king was so angry and furious, he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so the decree went out that the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Okay? Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill all the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, you know, what's up? Why the decree? Why is this so urgent to the king? And, and uh, the, this guy makes the matter known to Daniel. And so Daniel goes in and requests an appointment with King Nebuchadnezzar that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel goes home. He gets his three friends together, and he asks them to pray. He said, please pray and ask God to reveal to us and so that I can go and tell the king. And so verse 24 Uh, Daniel goes to Arioch, the captain of the guard, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said thus to him, he said, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So he brings him in, verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven, who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. And then Daniel lays out the dream and its interpretation. And it's a, it's a dream that uh, reveals the history of mankind. It's a fascinating dream to study. But just think of God now orchestrating all of this, right? The timing of it all and so forth, all leading to the first Gentiles to come and meet Jesus at Christmas time. This is about 586, so it's like 600 years before Christmas. 
And all of this is being orchestrated by God. If you go down to verse 48, the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him the ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, all the magi of Babylon. So imagine this playing out now for real. And and, uh, just imagine all of these other wise men and magi. What do you think their attitude toward Daniel is going to be? He just saved all their lives. He just stepped up and did what they couldn't do. Can you imagine the amount of respect that all of these people are going to have now for Daniel? He's got something they don't have. He's got this connection with God that they don't have. He's got this superior understanding and ability that's given to him by God. And they don't have it. And they're the kind of people who would be very curious. They would be a very... uh, 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 a very uh, hungry audience to know what is going on here. Who are you and where did you, and how did you do that? And not only that, but he just saved all their lives. So they're all going to have this respect for him. And I want to suggest to you that these wise men who showed up, you know, uh, these aren't the exact same people because it's five, 600 years later, but, you know, uh, they became so impressed with Daniel that Daniel was able to influence them with the truth that came from God. And what is the book of Daniel all about? It's all about prophecy. You know, the book of Daniel is the backbone of the Bible's prophecy. All the other prophecy that you want to understand, you have to make it gel with Daniel. And and God revealed to Daniel. In fact, Gabriel comes, the same angel who showed up at Christmas comes and reveals to Daniel. And the the prophecies in Daniel are are amazing. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9... Uh, It's very interesting. If you ask the question, how did the wise men know when to start to look for the king of the Jews? And in Daniel chapter 9, you know, Gabriel shows up to Daniel and reveals to him the timing of the coming of Christ. And uh, it's it's a fascinating passage of scripture. Let me read a couple of verses here. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, Daniel said, and confessing my sin and the sin of of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. So here's Daniel in captivity, and he's praying to God, and he's saying, you know, how much longer? Are we almost there? When will the end of this lousy captivity be over? When will the sins of Israel be paid for? When can we go back to the holy hill of Jerusalem? And be the people that you called us out to be. And Daniel's in prayer. He's talking to the Lord about that exact thing. And he's presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, uh, came to me in swift flight at that time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved by God. Isn't that great? Here's Daniel praying to God, and he's begging God, how much longer, how much longer? Are we almost there yet? When can this be over? When can we get back to being the people of God and not be in captivity here in Babylon? And therefore, he says, consider the word and understand the vision. And then he reveals it. Here's what he says. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people. Seventy sevens or 70 times seven, which is 490 years. Okay? And if you do the math, I mean, if you take the effort to do the math, you'll be amazed. Because the, the, 
accuracy of when Christ comes and when uh, he's crucified and what's left to come in the second coming. And so it's all in this little uh, revelation. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks, 49 years. Seven times seven, 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built, Jerusalem, again with squares and a moat, and, uh, but in troubled times. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This anointed one, Jesus, comes, but after the 62 weeks, he's cut off and he has nothing. There's no kingdom, no earthly kingdom. If you do the math, you'll, you'll be totally amazed, right? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And in the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's seven, you know, there's a gap between uh, the 483rd year and the beginning of the last seven years. And most of the New Testament prophecy about the return of Christ focuses on that last seven years, which we would say, has not started yet, but we're closer to it than ever before. And uh, he goes on and says, you know, uh, the abominations that will come and the city will be desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, the Antichrist, the desolator, you know, uh, that is to come and so forth. And I don't have time to go into, you know, and and next year, Lord willing, we're going to have a series of uh, messages on prophecy and where we're at in all that God has revealed to us about the second coming of Christ. Uh, but can you imagine Daniel's knowledge from God and the attitude of these magi towards him because he saved their life and because he's got something superior to what they have uh, and he knows more than they know and so forth. And they begun, they begin to become familiar with the Bible's prophecy and about the coming king and the coming Messiah that the Bible talks about. And so uh, with all that um, the Jews that are there in Babylon talking about their history with God and, and talking to them about you know, their experiences coming out of Egypt and, and the scriptures that they have with them and so forth, I want to suggest to you, if we ask the question, what happened to the wise men on their way to Christmas? I would like to suggest a very simple outline. I'll tell you what, Daniel spoke truth to them and they became curious. That's what happened to them. And when they got curious, all right, they pursued it until they could figure out what, whether it was true or not. And when they got to Bethlehem and they saw Jesus and it all came together, they became convinced. They went from being curious to convinced. And once they were convinced, they became committed and they worshiped Jesus. What happened to the wise men on the way to Christmas? Well, you know, I like to say... Uh, We like to say here at church, if you're really serious about helping another person become a believer, uh, the way to do it is first for them to have the opportunity to experience the love of God. And that's what happened with these wise men. They experienced through Daniel the love of God. He saved their lives. He stepped up. 
And uh, he was willing to get involved, and it got messy for him. He probably put his neck on the line to, you know, dare to go and talk to the king and, and, and to depend, be dependent upon the prayers that uh, his friends were um, offering to God and so on. But he did it. And so those people experienced the love of God. And they experienced the love of God to the point where they then wanted to embrace the truth of God. They searched the scriptures. And uh, they searched to figure out, you know, is this really true? Their curiosity had to become convinced. And, uh, and then when they became convinced, they became committed and they worshipped. And so when Cyrus uh, made the decree that the Jews could return and go back to Israel in Nehemiah's day and in Ezra's day, uh, most of the Jews, you know, stayed back in Babylon. They didn't all go. Just a small group went. And uh, some of them intermarried. And so some of the higher-ups in the uh, culture of uh, Babylon after this time, uh, we read Jewish names in their genealogies. And so it's very probable uh, that lots of the truths that came through Daniel from God, and uh, especially the prophecy and the Jewish scriptures, found their way into the religion of the people and what they believed uh, there in Babylon. And so the Magi were people who decided, we have to check this out and figure out if it's really true. And they figured out the timing and they looked for the star, and, um, and, and then they left on this journey to figure out, is this really true? They made the effort. They were willing to be inconvenienced. And so they show up in Jerusalem looking for the true God. Uh, you might call these guys the original seekers, right? We talk about seekers who are looking for God and trying to gain the truth about God. These guys might have been the original seekers. They're looking for King Jesus, and the Bible says they followed a star there in Matthew. And, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure, you know, what the star was. A lot of speculation about it and so forth. But there's one verse in the Bible, way back in the book of Numbers, uh, where Balaam, you remember the guy Balaam? He's famous because his donkey talked to him. You remember? He was, he was a prophet of God. And uh, he was going to, he had some bad guy want to pay him to prophesy against Israel. And he was going to do it for the money, Okay. And so he goes, and he's going to go do this, and the donkey stops and won't, you know, an angel's standing, and the donkey sees it, and Balaam doesn't, and, and the don- so he's beating on the donkey. It's a funny story. But anyway, finally, the donkey talks to him. You know, God talks to him through the donkey, turns around, and so forth. And so he gives some prophecies. And one of his prophecies in Balaam, in, uh, from Balaam is in Numbers 24, verse 17. And he's talking about, you know, um, the coming of this Messiah, And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, or Israel. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A scepter is a king's, you know, uh, scepter. And uh, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. He sees this prophecy. It's It's the only verse in the whole Old Testament that talks about a star as a sign. And I don't know what the star was. I mean, I tend to think it might have been, um, you know, like the Shekinah glory, a manifestation of the glory of God, that when the people came out of Egypt, Israel came out of Egypt, there was a, a cloud, you know, that led them by day and a pillar of fire at night, and it was a manifestation of the glory of God. And I suspect because the Bible says that this star came right over the house where Jesus was and led them right to the right house. I mean, who needs a GPS if you could have a star? I mean, think about it. So I'm not sure that um, a star would come right over somebody's house and, and hover over it and to direct them and so forth. But whatever it was, uh, they followed it, and they knew when to look for it. I uh, remember, a number of them were astrologers. 
And so they studied the stars and they studied the skies. And if they came across this verse, I suspect they might have camped out on it and, and wondered what it meant and so forth. Anyway, um, when they get there, they ask the question, where is he who's born king of the Jews? They knew the right question to ask. And uh, it's almost as if they assume that everybody in Jerusalem and in Israel is going to know that the king of the Jews has been born. They ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? It's the right question to ask. Who appointed um, Herod, you know, was the king back then. And uh, let me just read a couple more verses in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, they asked, you know, uh, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I think that's probably uh, a, the greatest understatement in the Bible, right? Herod was a guy who killed two of his own sons to hold on to his power. I mean, he was, felt threatened by his kids taking over, and so he wiped them out. And he killed one of his wives as well. And so uh, when Herod the king heard about this, another rival king... Uh, he was troubled, okay, agitated, and all Jerusalem with him. That's interesting, isn't it? And all Jerusalem, like I said, I think he came, these wise men came with an entourage. Everybody heard that they were there, and word started like, what's going on? Who are these people, and why are they here, and so forth? And Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. <clears throat> and so Herod assembled all the chief priests of the Jews and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told them, in Bethlehem of Judea. But the wise men are the only people who bothered to go there and look for him. All Jerusalem's upset about it. The king's upset about it. The chief priests and all the people that are associated you know, <clears throat> with the temple and with the leaders of Israel, they're all talking about it. They're talking about, oh yeah, it's in the Bible, it's going to be in Bethlehem and, and so forth. And Herod says, well, you guys go search for the kid. And uh, when you find him, tell me, and I'll come and worship him too. And so only the wise men bother to make the journey to figure out, is this really the one that the Bible has been talking about? And so they go. And, um, you know, uh, the other thing about the wise men that is kind of curious is that they do bring three gifts to worship with. They thought ahead, and uh, if this really was the king, and they were convinced, uh, they would be prepared. And so they brought these three gifts and, um, you know, uh, the gifts that they brought with them uh, indicate that they got who this king really is. Uh, they saw what the Jewish people seemed not to be able to see. In um, John's gospel, you remember in John chapter 1, it says that, um, uh, verse uh, 11, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Came to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people didn't receive him. But... To all who do receive him and believe in his name, he gives the right to become children, sons and daughters of the living God. How'd you like to have God for your father? How'd you like to have a God that you can totally trust and entrust yourself to? A God who will never let you down. A God who has prepared for you a place in eternity. A God who sacrifices himself. How'd you like to have God for your father? He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to all those who do receive him and believe in his name, he gives the right to become sons of God. And so these guys have three gifts, right? They have gold, as you know. And gold is very appropriate, right, for a king. That's, that's easy to understand, and, and they get it, and, and so forth. And then they have frankincense, and frankincense was a very expensive, like, perfume. 
and um, a fragrance. And um, if you go all the way back to Leviticus, where God is explaining his laws to people, um, frankincense was used to put on offerings and sacrifices to make them a fragrant offering to God. And so it was a sacrifice that you put on your sacrifices uh, to make uh, you know, uh, them acceptable to God. But then the third gift that they gave was myrrh. And myrrh was used to embalm people. Kind of a weird gift, isn't it? We have some friends that just had a baby yesterday. And I thought, what would happen if we showed up with some myrrh? <laughs> right? I mean, think about it. Uh, myrrh was used to embalm people. In John chapter 19, uh, after Jesus died, Nicodemus, uh, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in a linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Myrrh was used like an embalming kind of substance. It was also an anesthetic, and uh, you remember it was mixed with wine and offered to Jesus when he was on the cross, but he said, no thanks. It's a weird gift. How did they, how did they know? I mean, I suspect that perhaps they, they understood Isaiah chapter 53, that this Messiah, this king was going to die for the sins of the world, for the sins of the people. And they came to help him prepare for the mission. Jesus came into the world to die, right? For this, That was his mission. And somehow they sensed it from the Old Testament, and they were able to bring along a gift that was symbolic and appropriate uh, for this work that Jesus was going to do on the cross. And all of this, you know, when we look back on it, it just is such an encouragement to our faith. Make no mistake, this is the Messiah that God has promised since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God was going to send somebody to be the savior of the world. Otherwise, we're all on our way to a godless eternity. And so he sent Jesus, his only begotten son. And from our vantage point, this is such an encouragement for our own faith. Jesus indeed is the son of God. What happened to these wise men on the way to Christmas? They heard from Daniel the truth. Somebody shared with them. They became curious. They were loved by Daniel. He saved their lives. And they became curious. And they got so curious, they had to go check it out. They had to inconvenience themselves to find out, is this really true? Because if it is, it changes everything. It rearranges everybody's priority. And once they came and were convinced that it was true, they became committed and they worshipped Jesus. And there's one last verse in the Uh, section of Matthew that deals with the um, wise men, verse 12. And here's what it says. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, because you know what? Herod was going to try to kill Jesus, right? He kills all the babies two years and under to try to get rid of Jesus. Um, Lord willing, we'll talk about that the week after Christmas. Uh, But being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, we all understand geographically that means they went home by a different road and they avoided Herod and and so forth because God warned them. But I also can't help but think that it meant that they were never the same again. They went home a different way. They couldn't live the same again. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5 that says anybody who becomes a Christian is a whole new creation. They don't think the same anymore. They can't. They become a whole new creation, right? The old goes, the new comes. All things be, and it's all from God. 
And I can't help but think that these wise men, what happened to them on the way to Christmas? Well, they got loved by somebody who knew the truth, Daniel. And then they um, became so curious, they had to go check it out. Is this really true? And once they checked it out and became convinced, then they became committed. And they were never the same again. They had a whole different priority in their life. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker or the saying here and there, you know, wise men still seek Jesus. And I would say that's absolutely true. Wise men still seek Jesus. What's happening to you on the way to Christmas? Is anything like this happening? Or do you know anybody who needs to experience like Daniel did, you know, from us, somebody who needs that love and that uh, truth that Daniel shared with those other magicians, those wise men, so that they would become curious to find out, is this really true? Is there anybody in your life who looks at you and say, you have what I want? You know, the Bible says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Because people are going to ask, how can you be such an optimistic person in the face of your situation and so on and so forth? And are we doing our job to help people become curious about the truth we know and about what God has revealed to us? And are we helping those people move from being curious to becoming convinced by watching our lives and and, uh, by uh, inviting them to come to places where they can study the scriptures and so on? And, uh, and are they then becoming committed? Never the same again. All things becoming new. Looking at everything different. Well, uh, I asked uh, Mike Ruiz if he would come and uh, just share a little bit of his story with us. Because when I thought about the wise men and I thought about how they moved from being um, curious to being convinced to being committed, I just thought of Michael. He's an attorney and um, I know a little bit of his story. And so, Mike, if you'd come up here. And uh, share it with folks. I just think you'll see uh, how much his story just parallels the Wiseman. Thanks for being willing to share with us today. Appreciate it. So, Michael, somewhere along the line, you got to be curious. How'd that happen? Yeah. Uh, let me first start off by saying we coordinate very well. Lots of brown. Yeah, right? we do good. <laughs> um, my, uh, you know, my story's not it, 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 my the way I found faith was not a dramatic occurrence. It wasn't anything that was a big crescendo moment. It wasn't dramatic. It was just about three years ago I started asking the, you know, the so-called important questions. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're from, why we're here, the universe, uh, yeah. what's good and evil. You know, the kind of questions that either lead you to nihilism or hope, yeah. right? Yeah. And so as an attorney, I took it upon myself to do some self-study. And I started off with secular articles and and materials, and learned about the Big Bang, and I learned about yeah. Darwinism, and, and all the things that are taught in schools as gospel. I found out, wow, it's not gospel. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of holes there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the Big Bang, everything came from nothing, literally nothing. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the goody-you theory, which is, you know, biogenesis, life comes from only life, and they want you to believe the miracle that life came from just chemicals. Mm. So, as an attorney, I said, well, you know what, I gotta read the other side, too. I have mm. to... Uh, see what this whole creation thing is, right? And I started reading articles about that as well. And I have a good friend, my best friend who lives in North Carolina, he's a Christian, hmm. and I'd be driving to work, and I'd, be, you know, I'd ask him questions about God and what he yeah. believes. And finally he says, you know, buddy, you're asking a lot of these questions that you never asked. Yeah. And uh, he said, I think God's talking to you or speaking to you. So I'm going to send you a book. And he sent me a thick book, which is basically a... Uh, 
a summary of the Bible. I forgot the name of the book. And I read it. It was interesting. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take it upon myself to actually read the Bible, or at least try. Never have on my own as an adult, never. So I started reading John. And I'm not going to lie to you. I started reading it pessimistically, Hmm? cynically, right? Uh, Thinking I'm going to see a lot of these and thou's and shants and oh, really, you believe that, right? (laughs) But it didn't happen. You know, the more I read, the more true it sounded. And what I often did was, if Jesus said something, I'd stop. And said, let's say, hindsight's twenty twenty. As an attorney, what's a better way to answer that question, right? Uh And I can never come up with anything that was remotely as good as what was said by Jesus. So that led me to think, well, you know what? I think this is is the truth. To me, it rings true. This whole secular scientism thing. Lots of holes in that. That's another faith. That's another religion, right? They'll argue with you and they'll say, you know, you're anti-science. That's not true. If you do your work, you'll see that that's just not a good argument. And so one day I was my my son in the car, and I drove by the church and uh, saw you guys working out in the garden and doing work, and we came in and we were welcomed. That's cool. So... How did you go from, you know, being curious and, and start, start studying the scriptures and so forth? At what point did you sort of become, you know what, I'm convinced. This is really the truth. For me, the only worldview that's sustainable is Christianity. Okay. Because I think it answers all the questions. Okay. It answers the philosophical questions. Where yeah. is there right or wrong? Yeah. Because yeah. In, in modern philosophy, you can find truth. In postmodern, you make your own truth. Yeah, yeah. But we all innately know certain things are right and wrong, right? Yeah. And so for that to be, there has to be somebody above us who is a moral authority. Huh. And that led me to have a stronger belief in Christianity in terms of what it teaches, God. Yeah. And then also, again, all the science. Yeah. I saw that the stuff that they teach in school, yeah, it's science, and, but there's so many holes there, right? And yeah. things that just to me didn't answer the questions that I had. And so the more I read, the more I found out about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus and then some actual wise guy, a wise man, I'm a wise guy, you're a wise man, gave me a book called The Case of Christ by Lee Strobel about the historicity of Jesus Christ, and that was a big help as well. Yeah, yeah. So once you became convinced, then uh, how did it change your life? I mean, I I know you were baptized in Long Island Sound, which was pretty cold. Cold, on Easter, very cold. You know? And yeah. uh, you took a stand and said, you know what? If this <laughs> is really true, then I'm going to, you know, I've got to follow through in certain ways. So tell us a little bit about how your life is starting to change. You know, I find myself questioning things that I would never question before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be in the office and I'll think of doing something and I think, well, is that the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. I never did that. Yeah. It was always, this is the right way to, you know, to do things and yeah, I'll yeah. do it this way and my objective is this and I'll yeah. do it this way. And I actually think, is that correct? Is that the right way of doing things? I never did that before, yeah. right? And so that's how I see that I've changed. Just asking those questions, is that right? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I see that, you know, I get frustrated oftentimes I don't feel like I'm changing quick enough, but I see that it's happening. Yeah. And the yeah. fact that I'm frustrated that I'm not changing quick enough, I think is a good sign. Evidence. It's like when they say that, you know, when you ask, I think I'm crazy. The fact that you're asking yourself if you're crazy means you're probably not crazy, right? So I, I feel that, and I feel, you know, when I do things, what are the motivations behind it? And is it the correct thing? And with the big man yeah. looking down on you, is that? That's a good question. Right. Yeah. And, you know, just one last thing. 
I'm just curious about your friend, you know, who took a stab and said, I think God might be talking to you, and then followed through and gave you some resources and, and whatnot. And I just want to point out, I think that is such a significant role for all of us to play in other people's lives, because I think God does speak to people, and he is trying to draw more people to himself, and we do have a role in that, right? And uh, when I, I'm just, you know, I, I think of Daniel, and I think of your friend, and I think, you know, that's kind of the same role. And it's how the wise men, they went from curious to convinced to committed. And we have a role in that, you know, and it's a privilege for us, I think, to represent God that way. Yeah, no, I was uh, very fortunate. And you often, you know, be surprised because now that I'm a Christian, I'm not afraid to tell anybody I'm a Christian. See? I go yeah. to court and I, yeah. I debate Christianity with my fellow attorneys and, right. and I have no problem, you know, doing that. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he says he has an issue doing that. He finds it oftentimes difficult to do that. And I said, well, you did it with me, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It worked. He's, <laughs> right? he's probably stopped. not an attorney, right? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I like to argue. All right. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pause here to just recognize you as the source of all truth, right? You're, you're the source of our being. You're the one who created us. You made us. And uh, you're the one who reveals the truth to us about ourselves, about yourself, about what's to come in the future. And uh, you're the Father that we can trust and that we can entrust ourselves to. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as you keep drawing us closer to you, that we would be people like Daniel, that we would become so convinced and, and that we would, um, uh, in other people's eyes, just uh, be recognized as people who have more hope and, and who have more wisdom than the people around us and that uh, people would ask us, and when, when we're, uh, we sense that your spirit is uh, prompting other people to kind of ask those kind of questions, that we, like Daniel, would rise to the occasion, and we wouldn't be afraid to get involved. And uh, even though it can get messy, and I think it must have gotten messy for Daniel on numerous occasions, but as a result, Father, the whole Gentile world uh, becomes aware of uh, Jesus and what you're doing to save us from uh, a Christless, godless eternity. And uh, so this Christmas, Father, draw us deeper uh, into yourself and help us to represent you better uh, to the world in which you've placed us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Michael. Appreciate it.